Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Crafasi. Today, we're talking with Dr. Antonella Aguilera-Ruiz about mental health. Here's a clip from today's show. That's just my experience in practice is if we look at it from both angles, for the most part, we get better results. So we want to look at thyroid and hormone health. We want to look at inflammation. We want to look at the state of the gut. Want to look at those nutritional sufficiencies or insufficiencies because they're all going to affect mood. And I think sometimes we're just saying that's low mood or that's anxiety, but there might be some physical components that at least clear the picture. And then we know what part of mood we want to address or what tools we can match to better address that part rather than it all being mood when there's other root causes there. That's just a small taste of the great show we've got coming up. Rupa Health is the best way to order, track, and get results from 20-plus lab companies in a single place. Dr. Antonella Aguilera-Ruiz is a naturopathic doctor at her private practice, Wild Lemon Health, and the head of clinical programs at Peace of Mind, which is a community focused on mental health resilience programs. When Dr. Aguilera Ruiz was 17 years old, she found herself struggling with a chronic case of mono. As her health deteriorated, it wasn't until she saw a practitioner who used a holistic approach, including nutrition, herbs, and more, that she slowly started to get better. Dr. Aguilera Ruiz has a passion for combining integrative and functional medicine to provide another set of tools for those patients dealing with anxiety, depression, and other mental health conditions. Dr. Antonella, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. I really am excited to talk with you today. As am I. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And the topic that we have for today is pretty heavy. At least Mm -hmm. it can be pretty heavy sometimes. And so I want to start with a quote that I think is very relevant in today's world and will just be a nice way to begin our conversation about this topic. And this quote goes, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. And I think this is a great reminder for all of us because we are all human and we experience the same emotions and many of the same mental issues and mental concerns as one another. And even more importantly, that everyone has something going on in their lives at one point or another. And we never know at what stage we're entering that person's life. And so to always just be aware of that. And that kind of leads into our topic today of this mental health with a real focus on incorporating nutrition and diet into these health aspect. And so today, because this is such a vast topic, we really want to focus on those areas because we could obviously have lots and lots of dialogue around mental health and all sorts of things. But we really want to take this root cause perspective today and focus on how mental health plays a role with nutrition and diet and vice versa. So I want to start by picking your brain on some background of what your approach is with working with mental health patients. So essentially, how do you approach your patients from this root cause perspective and really understand how they've developed these mental health issues, such as anxiety or depression or bipolar or more. Yeah. So I really appreciate you starting with that quotation as well, because I think that's very much the lens through which I work in practice is that 
think so much stigma has been around these diagnoses that when we can start to break them apart and sort of like lay all the cards on the table without like trying to like pathologize or really be tied into a diagnosis, even though that can be a helpful guiding point, that that leads us to a root cause conversation. So in my practice, I'm really interested in hearing the whole story around how someone is experiencing depression, sadness, anxiety. There's a lot of, I think, also like nondescript language, right? We like limit ourselves. It's like depression, anxiety, or another diagnosis. There's such a vast array or menu of human emotions that I think we all experience. And we're sort of always checking like, is this normal? Is this not normal? So part of that root cause approach for me in practice is really like allowing a space where we can talk about all of those things, right? And start to understand, you know, maybe we had a really significant health event when we were adolescents and then there was a move and then there was a divorce and then there was a pregnancy, right? All of that starts to really matter when we think about root cause medicine, right? There's going to be an inflammatory piece. There's going to be a hormonal piece. There's going to be a nutrition piece. There's going to be a mental, emotional, sort of psycho-spiritual piece as well. And I find that we just get so much more traction and people, I think, feel much more validated when we're able to lay it all and have that conversation. So when I think about root cause, I'm trying to weave together all of those pieces. And I think it's worth saying at the beginning that it's not black or white. It's not because, oh, you had an emergency and there was some trauma, then you're going to be depressed, right? The road, I think, is never that straight. So it's more that we're trying to layer and sort of have people come to a recognition of all the contributing factors that potentially got them to a certain place. And then we try to unravel that web and sort of lighten the load for people is sort of the framework that I use to look at it. I love that. It's very similar to that of an analogy of an onion. There's so many mm-hmm. layers and you made some really good points there regarding these diagnoses and these pathological perspective that we take from a mental health standpoint versus, again, pulling back that onion, looking at the layers, looking at these life events that really came before and how this isn't just a black or white. This isn't just a ICD-10 diagnosis Mm -hmm. that we're going to label the patient with. We really want to get to know the patient and understand what they're dealing with. And so I'm so glad you brought that up early on about this difference between a diagnosis versus a really understanding what might be going on from a root cause perspective. Super important. So thank you for that. And now that we have this framework, what would you say are the most common types of mental health conditions that you see in practice and that are just plaguing the world, uh, especially today's world? Yeah. So I think in practice, what I see a lot of is depression and anxiety, sort of as formal diagnosis. But I would say that that's also on a spectrum, right? There's people who have dealt with like major depressive disorder, really, really dark periods. And then that will wax and wane. There's more of that like low lying depression that I would say is maybe more in the mild to moderate category and might be described more as like almost like an apathy, like a disillusionment, like where things just feel really hard, but it's not necessarily have episodes of deep suicidal ideation or really, really dark periods. But people sort of feel like they're just like going along and it doesn't feel lively. And then I also see a lot of anxiety in my practice in addition to things like bipolar. And bipolar is probably the most common one as well as other spectrums of eating disorders and things like that. But I would say what's probably really prevalent, especially in these last couple of years, is almost this like 
there's a lot of terminology out of it, like for it out in the space. Like I think we've gone beyond our surge capacity, burnout, overwhelm, right? Like where our ability to adapt to incoming stress has really, really been challenged. And there's sort of this in-between that I think doesn't quite fit a diagnosis, but people feel like they're having a hard time sleeping, they're irritable, they're getting melancholic or really sad or sort of like don't can't find their way. And sort of the physiology is something called HPA dysregulation or allostatic load. But it's more, it's just like our ability to adapt. Like we've stretched the rubber band so much that we're not quite as flexible to like regain that like rubberiness. And I would put that in the mental health category. And I'm seeing a lot of that where people are just like, I am at my wits end, right? Like I am like closing myself in the closet, watching Netflix because I just need 45 minutes to sort of gather myself. So yeah, I think that's an experience that I'm seeing a lot in practice that isn't necessarily an ICD-10 code, but sort of flirting with elements of anxiety as well as depression. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. I think there's a lot of layers, as you mentioned, to that. And far too many people I agree speaking with, they want to potentially entirely leave society and go into a cabin in the woods and never talk to anybody. So I think we can all relate to that aspect now and then. But as you mentioned, I think as it relates to that HPA dysregulation or the allostatic load, there is a lot of factors there that also will then impact the mental health of each patient that you work with. So really glad that you went over that. And it is truly unfortunate that so many people are experiencing this thing. Do you think that, especially in the past couple of years, though, as you mentioned, this really has been building up, it appears, that even with this COVID-19 social distancing and some of these isolation guidelines that have been all around the world. Now, do you think that these new enforcements or previous enforcements were also adding to that allostatic stress load and something that was really impacting people? Yeah. I mean, I think we're so affected by our environment and human connection is just so important. And so, right, like there's public health needs that need to be addressed. And then there's like the way that we're built and wired. And so I think that isolation piece has been really big. We know that a feeling of isolation and being isolated from community is a risk factor in and of itself. It's more dangerous to our health than obesity or smoking. And so when we put sort of the stress of a global pandemic, economic, social challenges, and then you isolate people, I think that that's challenging. That's challenging for our nervous system and sort of our internal physiology to take because we aren't wired for that type of social isolation. So I think that has been a real added layer. And I've heard that in my practice and in conversation that that isolation piece across decades and age groups has been very, very challenging. I agree. I think there's a lot of that aspect of we need love, we need nurturing just as a baby, that nature versus nurture debates of, yes, babies need love. We all need love, that energetic exchange that we do. And I think as it relates to even maybe the Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs, yeah. of just primal needs, that, that relationship, that interaction with other people is so important. So thank you for talking about that. So with each of some of these conditions, or let's call them again, diagnoses that we've talked about so mm -hmm. far, anxiety, depression, bipolar, and more. And we know there's multiple layers, as we said to this, what would be the standard or say conventional treatment for most of these conditions? Yeah. So the standard treatment, most 
sort of across the board, right, is some sort of pharmaceutical intervention combined with therapy. And so people can elect to do one or the other. And that combination of both is usually what's been most effective for people. But I will say, especially in depression and anxiety, we know that not everybody responds well to medication. So about 50% of people will go on medication and either they won't respond well to it or the side effects will outweigh the potential benefit of that medication. And so sort of set ourselves up for either layering, trying another medication, swapping it out, or sort of stacking on top other medications to get some relief. And then people will have varying degrees of success with therapy, but traditionally those have been our two choices, one or the other, the combination of both of them. That's great to know. And Dr. Antonella, we are on the Root Cause Medicine podcast. So it's very mm-hmm. interesting point that you just brought up. And I'd love for you to go more in depth on this factor of this person might respond to a medication differently than person B, reverse person C versus person D. Can you talk a little bit about why that might be and how that plays a role in really trying to find the root cause and how that is all connected? Yeah. I mean, I think in so many ways, that's probably a million dollar question, right? If we would have figured that one out, that would have unlocked so many different things. But I think it goes back to the root causes, right? Like I can think of a woman I had worked with in the past who had tried medications and they really like just helped a tiny bit, but the side effects were too much. And we had a conversation about it and she really said like, you know what? I think part of this is that I just need skills. I just need skills to meet the difficulty in my life. There's this sadness, like there's almost like an inner growth that I feel like I need. And I haven't responded well to medications in the past. And her diet was full of processed foods. There was an inflammatory piece there. And so we had this discussion, right? Like her root cause is perhaps not related to this serotonin pathway. And so she wasn't seeing a huge benefit from that type of medication. But when we started to like, empower her with mind-body skills. We worked on her diet. We got her eating enough protein. She started to have this relief in her mood. And so I think it's not about one or the other. It's matching the right set of tools to someone's circumstances, right? If someone says, I had a significant trauma and something has been difficult afterwards, if we don't address the trauma piece in addition to the physiological pieces, I think we just aren't doing people justice. And if someone says, I haven't responded to medications, it's not like we want to try to fit them in. Then we have this other toolbox that we can look at and say, like, are there supplements? Is it a hormonal piece? Is it inflammatory piece? Are you maybe missing B12? Do we need to supplement you with folate? Are these other things that we can do to help balance your body out and see the effect in mood and then make another choice right at that juncture? So I think that's that's really where the root cause and like knowing and listening to people in that importance of their story, right? The depression of someone of person A and the depression of person D can be the same diagnosis, but the way they got there is different and unique to them. And what they want from treatment or an intervention and how that matches with those values, their own values can be fundamentally different. And so I think When we talk about root cause medicine, that's important too, right? Like having the information, allowing people to make a decision about their care and know the cost benefit analysis for all of those different choices. I think that's where things get like really spicy in a good way. 
I agree. And that's where I, I was hoping that you answer that. And, and you did just that. So the whole idea was that we all are these different individuals with different needs and different root issues. And so applying one treatment to the same person will never usually work. We all respond differently to medication or to supplements, to lifestyles, to a million things. And so that's where we really have to go down that rabbit hole for each patient, find out what works best for them based on their own biochemical uniqueness. And so thank you for talking a little bit about that. I think it's a really important aspect of this. Yeah, totally. So now we've covered some of the traditional routes of treating these conditions that we talked about, mostly pharmaceuticals and therapeutic discussion, more or less, for things like, again, bipolar, anxiety, depression, and more from a diagnosis perspective. What I really want to pick your brain now on is how does nutrition and diet play a role in these conditions? How does how do you merge this aspect of mental health? Yeah. So, oh my gosh, you'll just have to cut me off when the time is up right here because this is such a huge topic. And I think something that we haven't like really taken full advantage of that the growing research on diet, especially when it comes to depression and anxiety, and especially with depression, we've got some really good data that it's having a really big impact. And we think that that's probably from a variety of reasons. One, it's probably repleting nutrients. Two, it's probably modifying the gut flora in a positive way. And so in that gut-brain connection, we're getting some shifts there. And finally, it's also probably having an impact on inflammation so that if we're cutting out refined sugars, processed foods, trans fats, replacing that with nuts and seeds and legumes and olive oil and avocado and fatty fish, that we're getting a lowering of inflammation. And so I think this is worth highlighting with like good data that we have the SMILES trial, which was the first randomized control trial that took people who were moderately depressed um, the intervention was the Mediterranean diet. So people received instructions on how to implement the Mediterranean diet, sort of the highlights of what that diet is. They measured their depression before, and then they measured it afterwards. And so what they found after three months on the diet was 30% of people went into remission. So I'm just going to repeat that, right? 30% of people went into remission which is extraordinary when this is a dietary intervention. These people were also in therapy. So this was layered on top was a dietary intervention. And we're going to get so little side effects from a nutritional intervention, right? And it's enjoyable, right? There's an aspect of community that would eventually come in with food, right? The ability like eating with other people. That's very much my bias speaking through there and the importance of nutrition, but I think in that trial, they also found that people had less anxiety. They reported less stress and less anxiousness. So I think it's just this underutilized tool that actually what we're eating and how we're eating is happy, having a profound effect on our brain. And so we can actually eat to like build a more resilient and healthier brain, or we can get in the way of those pathways. And I think, unfortunately, the standard American diet gets in the way of those pathways more often than not. That is so hugely important. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up some of these really good points, one of which is that food brings people together. And I totally mm -hmm. agree. First, that's an astounding statistic for that study at 30%. You don't see that very often with an intervention, much less diet, as you're saying. And to use food as that intervention and having that culture, we know that humans are herd 
uh, head mentality and, you know, creatures. We like to engage with others. We like to eat and cook with others. And it really brings people together. And, and as you're putting it with the standard American diet and with some of these new inventions, we will call them such as fast food, where people right. are eating in their cars and they're not sitting down with family, the family unit and forming those bonds and forming that immune strengthening and all those other good aspects of mental health along with that food on the plate and food in their belly from a yes. nutrition standpoint, I think it really can impact mental health. So I'm glad that you brought up some of those really important points. So good news is clearly there are some natural ways of treating mm-hmm. these mental health issues, including obviously diet and nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's interesting and another point worth making there is that what we're starting to see pop up in the literature is that things like the Mediterranean diet can actually make antidepressants work better because they are affecting inflammation. So again, I don't want people to listen to this and think it's an either or or a yes, but right. A lot of this is in that and territory. Like yes, and there's this other idea that we can bring to the table. And so if someone feels that, for example, an antidepressant is the best choice for them, there could be an argument to be made that that should be layered with the Mediterranean diet because they will likely get a more effective response and they can be on a lower dose, for example, right? So if you're going to use a pharmaceutical, you want to use the effective smallest dose to get the desired outcome. And so if we can address inflammation from a diet perspective, that can also help even if someone's using conventional treatment or it can set someone up if they potentially want to taper at some point, right? It's setting the foundation. And so I think diet is huge for so many reasons, but even that interplay with conventional treatment, I find really fascinating as well. Yes, that's important. And for all those listening, as Dr. Antonella put, you can pick your kale and eat it too, all right? (laughs) So Dr. Antonella, I want to now shift our conversation a little bit. We talked a little bit about traditional what's called therapy, all right? Mm -hmm. Many people have heard of this word or even have gone to therapy. Don't ask me, I will tell you too many stories, joking. (laughs) But it is important as as you talked about it because sometimes mental health conditions can get this stigma and they just aren't talked about sometimes. Many people will, again, go home and, and they're dealing with a lot inside of their heads and they might not even have any overt physical symptoms, but day mm-hmm. after day after day, they're being weighed down by something is bothering them mentally. And so it's important to really talk about these things. And and I, I, throughout, I think throughout our lives, we all deal with one thing or another that would be helpful to talk about. So we know that therapy can be very helpful. And, and there's many different kinds that I really want you to talk about. There's cognitive behavioral therapy, there's dialectical behavior therapy, there's what's known as EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. I know you're familiar with all of these and many more. Can you talk and walk us through some of these types of therapy and this aspect of care for a patient? Yeah. Yeah. I really, I mean, I think the take home there is that there's different forms of therapy and part of it is matching to something that meets your goals. A lot of times what I see in practice is that there, people are either like pigeonholed, and I don't say that in a judgmental way. They're sort of like they chose a therapist based on their insurance, and their therapist does a particular type of therapy, and that might not quite match what their end goal is or what their value system is around therapy. So, something like CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, 
it's like very focused on outcome, right? Like there's exercises that you do, you work with the therapist, there can sometimes be protocols that help. And so for the right person who has like something very specific, it might be a fear or a phobia that can be really effective. But for example, like if someone has had a past trauma or there's like a single event, then a tool like EMDR can be really helpful in processing that. And it's not necessarily something that you need to talk through over and over again. You can use something like EMDR. What I find really effective in my practice is something called internal family systems, where it actually, you can sort of like, I'm going to butcher this definition, not being a therapist. And this is something that I refer out for, but like essentially you're having a conversation with various personalities and or voices that exist within you. And I would venture to guess we can all relate to this, right? I have like the five-year-old who's like, oh my God, am I going to get left out of like getting picked up last for the team? And the adult in there that's like, it's okay. If you're the last person, like if you pick yourself for the team, you're going to be okay. But that like there's a conversation that can happen through all of these parts, different parts of ourselves. And it's really humanizing and not pathologizing around that internal experience. And I find that for the right person, that can be really helpful, especially if they're like looking for a transformation or they sort of feel stuck. Having that approach can be really helpful. So all to say is that if people aren't finding therapy effective or reaching their goals, that it's worth having a conversation with their practitioner, even with the therapist or looking for other types of therapy. Because I think getting matched with the right approach is really important. And there's such a wide variety of approaches. Some are more body-based. That can be really helpful. Like somatic-based therapies can be really helpful for people, especially if they have a lot of physical symptoms. So it's just a matter of figuring out the right fit. No, thank you so much for going over all those different types. As you mentioned, it's really dependent on the person. Again, really relating to your own background, what's going to be best for you. It may not be best for someone else. And so (laughs) finding out those different types of therapy, and there's many, many different types that you just covered, going to be really helpful for people. I think we can all relate to what you mentioned and and feel like we're all Jim Carrey at one point in time, and me, myself, and Irene, where we're having these multiple... (laughs) things going on and we feel what is happening in our lives. So I agree there's that aspect that we really need to understand in our in our own minds. So how would you say mental health works with other body systems? I want to really put the pieces together here so mm-hmm. our listeners understand how everything is connected in the body. We really can't separate different body systems. You can on paper, but everything truly <laughs> still works in conjunction with each other. And, you know, how the brain and the mind can impact the digestive or the thyroid system and even vice versa. Can you talk a little bit about all these different systems in the body and how they're really connected? Yeah, absolutely. I think before I answer that, if it's okay to go back to the therapy for just a quick minute, that's something that I will say, again, like thinking about this in the mind and the body is that a lot of times what I have found is if people have been in therapy for a long time, and not getting where they want to go, that looking at the body and having a practitioner who's like asking you how much coffee you're drinking, right? Like you could be talking about anxiety in therapy, and then we actually figure out that you're having a ton of coffee that's causing that anxiety. And that sounds really simple, right? It's not always that simple, but sometimes it is, right? If someone's getting really anxious and they're not eating their meals on a regular schedule, that's something that might not be covered in therapy, but it's the territory of therapy. 
And so that's, I think, shows some of, it's almost points to the question that you're asking in a different way, right? That how that connection really matters, right? That if we look at it from both angles, then they start to have a synergy and work together in a really awesome way. So sorry for that detour. We can come back to your question about the body systems. So I think another way to look at this is that we want to be sure that we've got the right diagnosis and that we're really clear with what we're working with. And so I think that's an easier way to sort of understand how all these body systems are interconnected. And I'll give the example of thyroid. So hypothyroid, when your thyroid is under-functioning, can lead to fatigue. It can lead to brain fog. It can also have physical symptoms of constipation. You can experience hair loss, dry skin. So if you imagine if this has been going on for a long time and someone goes to a quick visit, someone might actually just be like, I think you're depressed. It's in your head, right? You're tired. You've got brain fog. That could be diagnosed as depression. What's really going on, if we spent a little bit more time and asked more questions and did a proper assessment, is how is your mood and hypothyroid is probably going on? And what happens if we address the hypothyroid? Is that going to have an effect on your mood, right? Is your energy going to go up? It's going to be easier to go outside and work out and make meals. And then you see a lifting of mood. So I think, again, like we're not parsing out the conversation correctly. I think the same can be said for anemia. That's another thing, right? People feel tired. They feel like they can't work out. The recovery isn't there. Brain fog, things that might look like depression or low mood, but you actually need to like replete that iron and make sure that your blood is oxygenated. So we start to see how all of these things start to build, right? If someone doesn't have enough B12, that's going to literally affect your brain size. So that like we need to look at nutritional status. There are hormonal changes that happen, especially during a woman's life, right? At those like inflection points that can have a deep impact on mood that estrogen and serotonin are very closely connected in our stress response. So we start to see how it all starts to weave together, right? Like if we've got inflammation in the gut and our diet isn't great, that's going to start to affect our brain function. We might not have enough anti-inflammatory omega-3s. And then that might get diagnosed as depression, but we actually also need to look at the gut because they're talking to one another. And if we do both, that's just my experience and practice is if we look at it from both angles, for the most part, we get better results. So we want to look at thyroid and hormone health. We want to look at inflammation. We want to look at the state of the gut. We want to look at those nutritional sufficiencies or insufficiencies because they're all going to affect mood. And I think sometimes we're just saying that's low mood or that's anxiety. But there might be some physical components that at least clear the picture. And then we know what part of mood we want to address or what tools we can match to better address that part rather than it all being mood when there's other root causes there. Absolutely. I love some of these analogies you brought in. Really important. Again, just really connecting the mind, the body, and all these other body systems. As you said, for example, if you're taking a thyroid patient and and many people experience the exact scenario that you mentioned, which is they go to their doctor and their doctor tells them that it's in their head or they're perfectly fine on the lab report. But in fact, they are feeling high brain fog, memory issues, et cetera, et cetera. And so taking that multi-aspect approach of we need to really find the root issue of why you're dealing with this. And maybe that is due to a gut infection that's impacting their microbiome. And now it's impacting and throwing off neurotransmitters. And that's why they're getting 
brain fog or fatigue or all these other things in their life. I, so I think I'm glad that you went over some of these more in detail. Yeah. Or like, I remember a woman I worked with who was in severe pain and she kept telling her doctor she was in severe pain and she started to develop anxiety. And her doctor was like, I think it's just, in." he literally told her it was just in her head and referred her to a psychiatrist. And she very much had like a fibromyalgia picture and we treated the pain and the inflammation and her blood sugar and the anxiety went away, right? It was a symptom of another system being out of balance. And so it just warranted a much more in-depth conversation as well as investigation around her. And I think it's worth naming that, especially women, a lot of times can be told it's just in your head, right? Like it's just in your head, which isn't in itself infuriating, sort of makes you second guess, like, is it just in my head, right? Like I shouldn't be feeling this way, but it always warrants, I think, a complete workup. So we know what it isn't and what it actually is. Exactly. That makes that makes total sense. So Dr. Antonella, many people, as we talked about, get put on pharmaceutical medication with health issues, even sometimes mm-hmm. before getting these laboratory tests done, as we're talking about, they'll come in with numerous other clinical symptoms. And if they get told it's in their head, they still might get medication for mm-hmm. this. And these laboratory tests can, or there's many that can help to uncover the root issues of some of these mental health issues that as you've been talking about. So can you talk a little bit about some of these laboratory tests that can help us identify mental health conditions further, or at least put the pieces together for them so that we really know what we're looking at here and also to provide hope to the millions of people around the world that are suffering with this type of thing. Yeah. So I think sort of the list that I want to go through is what I think should be part of the workup, right? That we're saying like, these are the symptoms and these are the things that we want to look at so that we know, is it this? Is it this? Is it not this? Is it contributing? Sort of in broad categories, I would say is like first the nutritional sufficiency. We want to make sure that you're replete with iron. I preferably like to see that as a ferritin as well. So doing a complete blood count as well as ferritin and a ferritin are your iron stores. And a lot of times I will see a normal CBC, but really, really low ferritin that's actually flagged on the reference value. So that just tells us that your body's sort of running on empty. It doesn't have a lot of it stored. And we know that women especially feel better at the like mid-range of ferritin levels. Their thyroid is going to work optimally in that mid-range, right? So we want to make sure that you have enough ferritin. You can oxygenate your blood, make sure all of that is working. Also, in my opinion, really important to look at vitamin B12. We know that that has a lot to do with cognitive function. And it can be low in people who are vegans or if there's malabsorption issues, right? So we want to make sure that people have enough B12 and also vitamin D. It's acting as a hormone in the body. So we want to make sure that people have sufficient levels of vitamin D. Sometimes I'll also run a folate because we know that that's really important for like our neurons and making neurotransmitters. But at the basic, I would look at iron B12 as well as vitamin D. So that's sort of like the big nutrients. We want to make sure that no one's like running around anemic and that they've got enough vitamin D and they've got enough B12. Then I would say we want to look at hormones. So we talked about thyroid. Thyroid is one of those things, especially hypothyroid or even hyperthyroid can mask either as depression or anxiety. So you want to have a full understanding of what's going on in terms of thyroid health. So a complete panel I would look at would be free T3, free T4, your TSH, as well as antibodies. Because Hashimoto's is one of the most common causes of hypothyroidism in the US. You want to be sure that 
you're not dealing with an autoimmune cause of those issues. So from a hormonal perspective, that's what I would look at. Sort of related and also hormonal in part would be blood sugar, right? Like we've probably had the experience of being hangry, right? Like if you're two or three hours after you should have eaten, you're going to feel hangry. But if you're feeling hangry all the time, right? And your blood sugar is going up and down, that's going to signal a stress response in the body. So you want to make sure that your blood sugar is balanced, that you're not insulin resistant, that hormonal relationship is working. So I would also say we want to look at metabolism in like a fasting insulin, a fasting glucose and calculate something called a a HOMA IR, which can give us an idea of how insulin resistant or not somebody is. So those would be the basic labs. They're not necessarily, there's one more I want to mention before that, but they're not necessarily, you're not going to get them back and be like, oh, this is a diagnosis of depression, right? But it gives us a more complete understanding of what's going on, what's happening in those systems and in that root cause so that we know exactly what we're dealing with. And the last one I would add in there is something called a highly sensitive CRP. So this is an inflammatory marker. What we're seeing is that it's tracking a lot with higher incidence of depression as people have higher levels of inflammation. So I think we still have to like solidly cause put causation in there, right? But I think as a lab marker, it's not very expensive that we can see if someone's very, very inflamed we probably need to add in some anti-inflammatory protocols and see how that's affecting their mood. So I would also do a highly sensitive CRP in that base workup as well. I love it. Yes, that comprehensive baseline testing that you went over is so crucially important. And if we take it a step further and look at some of these, what we would call, say, functional or integrated Mm -hmm. medicine lab tests, what are some additional tests that say from the baseline, you get great knowledge, but you need to take it a step further with your patient because symptoms persist or they're continuing to deal with other types of issues related to their mental health. What are some other tests that you might run for a patient? Yeah. So probably the one that I turn to the most is an adrenal stress profile, which is a four-point cortisol test. So we're getting an idea of what your stress response is doing during the day. And so what I found is that that stress response can become really blunted, right? We've overtaxed the system so much that the body's like, I cannot take any more cortisol. Let's blunt this response. And the other side is feeling really fatigued, really brain fog, weight gain, low immunity, just like you've been spent, right? Like you have just run 500 marathons and you've got nothing else in the tank. That can really help us sort of understand like a deep apathetic fatigue that could very much be depression, right? It can help us hone in on that stress response. But we can also see people who are adapting, right? Like they're trying, like the system is built to try the best it can to adapt, right? So stress after stress, it's going to try to meet it. It's going to go into overdrive. And that's something else that we can assess with those cortisol levels. So I reach for a four-point cortisol really often in my practice. For still getting stuck, there might be a reason to do some gut testing, right? We might need to actually test for leaky gut, which is called intestinal hyperpermeability, if we want to see that inflammatory cycle, right? If someone's still having ups and downs in IBS diarrhea, right? Do we need to look deeper about what's going on in the gut? Is there an inflammatory piece in the gut, right, that can help us sort of unbreak or unlock what's going on? So those are probably the two that I reflex too if we get stuck with that basic blood work. Good to know. And yeah, you brought up a great point. The body is so resilient. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have three stages, right, of quote unquote <laughs> adrenal fatigue, not just one. 
It's three that your body's going to start to try to adapt and over time, it just can't survive any longer. And it starts to fall into that uh, unfortunate health issue. So we thank you so much for going over that comprehensive view of from the baseline testing that you would start with the patient down to more of the higher specific markers and broader testing categories. So really important for people to know that there's options out there to get information from that. You don't have to just rely on, on one or two markers to give you insight into what's going on. So thank you so much again, Dr. Anton. This has been a pleasure. And I have a, a couple last questions for you. Sure. In your viewpoint, what does the future of mental health and this integrative or root cause treatment look like? Yeah. So this is maybe what my hope is that it will look like, is that I think we're starting to really appreciate that everything is more complex than we perhaps gave it credit for, right? Like there's a lot of naming of the mind-body connection. And I think we're more and more just going to appreciate like how interconnected and complex that is. And my hope is that it also opens up the conversation about like the human experience of suffering, right? Like mental health is very much that junction, right? It's very clear that something like doesn't feel right that is creating deep distress in someone. But I would say as humans, most of us have had that experience and all of us have had that experience, right? I hope it opens up the conversation so that we are able to talk about that more frankly, have support in community and just appreciate like that the body is having a lot of effect in the mind and that we can also like through neuroplasticity, right? This ability to change the brain, we can help the brain signal differently to the body. That just leaves things really ripe for really empowered patients and really empowered people to have a big toolbox for how they deal with their mental health in whatever way they want. Super interesting. Thank you for sharing that with us. And Dr. Anselmo, again, this is such a heavy, heavy topic. Mm -hmm. So thank you for distilling it down for our listeners today and really making it just human as we are. So if you could give one tip to somebody listening who's suffering with mental health issues, like we talked about, maybe them being diagnosed with depression, anxiety, bipolar, they're experiencing those types of symptoms related to that. What, what would it be? Yeah. I mean, I think when we look at the data and I sort of, I think of my own experience, it's really hard to distill it down to one. So I'm going to just like sneak in here and do two. So I would say like looking at diet and finding support, right? Like None of this thrives in isolation and thinking like we're the only person experiencing this and that there's something wrong with us and that like we should be different, right? Like I think we need deep support, whether that be a practitioner, a group health class, a community group, a mind-body skills class, right? Something like mindful-based stress reduction, like where you can go and actually realize that like there's a humanity going on. So I think that support is really important. And because I also know that diet can make such a deep difference, I would say learning one aspect of the Mediterranean diet and implementing it, whether that's like eating a little bit more fish, including legumes, getting a good olive oil and putting it on everything. I think support and taking those steps towards the Mediterranean diet are really, really crucial. Amazing. Dr. Antonella, thank you so much again for jumping on the podcast today. It's been such a pleasure to talk about mental health with you today. So thank you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure for myself as well. And I hope people leave hopeful. Like you said, this is a big topic. But I think if anything, 
I am always inspired that there's a lot of hope in healing and it's just a matter of finding the right tools. Love it. And thank you for that again. And we will chat with you next time. Sounds good. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is brought to you by Rupa Health. To find out more about us and how we are changing the lives of patients and practitioners across the U.S., head to rupahealth.com. And then make sure to search for Root Cause Medicine in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere good podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Rupa Health, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.